Today's scripture reading is from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 1 through 29. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page uh, 1151 through 1152. Or you can use your version Bible app on your phone if you have that, which is very convenient. And it records that Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave, he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send me to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius asked or called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as the reptiles of the earth and the birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have not, never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that, has, that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where, Peter, where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that you could hear what you would have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So whenever I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? This is God's word. All right. Well, we have been in this unusual sermon series, or uh, summer series, pardon me, unusual ser summer series, and it's not exactly uh, your typical sermons. In fact, I haven't really been calling them a sermons. We moved the pulpit over there so it would look less official, because this is really more like a talk, a conversation uh, about some topics that are uh, hot in our culture today and hot within the church today. Uh, issues that a lot of Christians wrestle with and struggle to know uh, what is it that we believe and why. And, and so that's kind of what we've been dealing with. And, and each week I share on a topic that range, we spent the first few weeks talking about different aspects of human sexuality and gender. And, and we've talked you know, about all these different topics that are, are difficult a lot of times to engage with one another about, much less the world about. Uh, a lot of times we have people in our family or network of friends that perhaps view things differently than what Christians tend to believe. And so we struggle sometimes to know how to dialogue about that. A lot of these things are politically charged. They are talked a lot about in politics right now. Believe it or not, it's unbelievable how much the election cycle is already revved up for an election that's not even going to happen for over a year. And so we're going to have a lot of this going on. Every now and then, current events happen, right? Of, um, terrible events or just things that come up in the news that um, 
bring these issues to a, a new level of heatedness. And so people in and out of the church struggle sometimes with being easily triggered by topics that come up. Uh, we get heated, our blood pressure goes up, we you know, uh, start saying things that later we might turn out to regret, or maybe we should later regret. And uh, so anyway, we've been going at these topics, we've got two left. If you have not enjoyed this series and are waiting for it to be over, you're almost done. If you can get through today, you've just got one week left. So today um, we're talking about foreigners which is related to the topic of immigration and things that refugees and different things that we deal with on a constant recurring basis in our news cycle uh, for various reasons. And next week we'll deal with the environment. Both of these have stretched me a little bit outside of my uh, typical viewpoint on the subjects as I've had to wrestle with, well, what does scripture say? And what is the context of all these things? And, and so if you come today and you're wanting a, a advice about how to vote or uh, exactly what the United States immigration policy should be, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, I, that's that's uh, above my pay grade. But what I can share with you is, is from scripture, what should be the Christian's viewpoint towards the foreigner and, and how we might pray and how we might act and how we might speak regarding those who are different than us, those who are from different places than us, and so forth. So we're talking about foreigners, and it can be a hot topic. I want to also add that, uh, again today, my goal, as every week through this, has been to try and share a little background on what, uh, what most Christians through most time in history have believed that Jesus and his apostles have taught on these subjects. That viewpoint is often called orthodox, at least that's what we call it in theological circles. Uh, sometimes we only hear the word orthodox when it's referring to a religious group or something like that, but it just means what is traditionally and generally accepted as true. Uh, things like the Apostles' Creed, uh, or the Nicene Creed, these early, early, early creeds that, that you know, put out the essentials of what it is to be a Christian, what it is to believe Christian things uh, that most Christians have held for a long time. And similarly, we can look at even a lot of these topics and say, well, what, uh, what is the belief? What, what have Jesus and his apostles taught? And, and so we are part of and networked with the Church of God, Anderson, Indiana. It's a, a group of churches that... Uh, have some things about us that are distinctive. We emphasize holiness and we emphasize unity of the believers. We emphasize some things like that. Lately we've been really emphasizing that Jesus is the subject and that we should get back to him as our primary subject and not worry about disagreements over smaller side issues. Most of the things that make us distinct are emphases like that. Things that we emphasize that maybe this group doesn't. We have some things about our theology that might be different than this group or that group, just as theirs is different from this group and that group. We have some things that are, are unique. But on these topics, uh, and on most every topic, we are uh, what you would call orthodox Christians in the sense that we believe the things that most Christians through most time and place have believed about Jesus and his apostles' teachings. And so when we talk about these things as we've talked about the last few weeks I've tried to share what it is that we believe and and we believe what most Christians have believed we're not some kind of rogue group out there just um, you know there's there's groups that are very progressive and open about look we uh, we know what most Christians have believed but we're going in a new direction we believe there's um, you got to get with the times you know that kind of thing and that's not us and um, there's other groups who have very um, uh, fundamentalist ideas about how you have to interpret scripture that again are new to and in, in the scheme of 2,000 years of Christianity and we don't buy those either as a whole we stick with as a group of churches the church of God that we're affiliated with and beyond we stick with what most Christians have believed to be true about scripture we search the scripture we don't have a set of creeds or uh, things that we say here's what we believe uh, because we search scripture and, and we try to figure out what does the Bible say and, and what have you know, most people who have studied it the deepest said that scripture says and teaches. 
And so that's kind of where we're coming from, and I've tried to make the case the best I can uh, each week as to why we believe that and why I hope that you would believe that. At the same time, you may find that you don't agree with everything I've shared, and I want you to know that you're still welcome to worship with us. We're not the kind of group that says, well, if you don't agree with us on everything, then you're not welcome here. And so we just want you to know that as well. So foreigners. There's actually a ton of scripture about foreigners. I'm going to try to read them all to you today. <laughs> not really, but it might feel like that at a couple times. Uh, so let's just dive right in. A lot of these come from the, what's called the Pentateuch or the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those books that come at the very beginning are core to the Jewish people. Always have been. They, they hold the Jewish law and, and a lot more. And they're the foundational documents for Judaism. They were often referenced by Jesus and his apostles. And they are... Uh, still hold a lot of truth for us today, even though we don't identify as Israelites in the same sense that they did. Uh, we believe that there's a new covenant because Jesus was the Messiah, and so we are Jesus-centered in our faith. But nonetheless, uh, Jesus did not cancel out all the truth that was revealed to the Jewish people. He just forged a new covenant, a new legal system, of a way to relate to God and a lot more freedom and by his spirit. And so it's a whole different way of relating to God. But the truths that we find in scripture are still very helpful. And they, so this is some examples. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. So uh, God often reminded the Israelites of this. You used to be foreigners. You used to be slaves. So you should be nice to foreigners. You should be nice to slaves. Remember that you were once in their shoes. You know, have you ever come up against someone who is going through a hard time that you've gone through before? And you have a lot more empathy? You know, uh, Julie went through some difficult pregnancies. And sometimes, every now and then, we'll run into, you know, a young woman dealing with a similar kind of pregnancy. And... It causes a different level of heartache for us than it would have if we had never gone through that. And so God's constantly reminding his people, look, remember, you were once in their shoes. You know, it's interesting when we think about um, issues like that we deal with today with immigration and refugees. And a lot of that has come from the uh, establishment of hard set internationally recognized borders which is not something that historically, ancient history, uh, they would have been that familiar with. So you had territory, obviously, that you held influence over in that culture, but there was neither the technology nor the manpower to create borders like we do today. Uh, now, you might say, well, the Chinese built that huge wall. That's true. They did. The Chinese have a lot of people over there, too. <laughs> and they built a really big wall uh, to protect themselves from the raiders from the north. So that's true. That happened. By and large, though, in the area of the world that ancient Israel was in, they were kind of a lot of nomadic people that would just kind of roam around. And, and then there were people who would create city-states. They would create a city, and they'd build a wall around that city. And they would defend that wall, because they had enough people to defend that wall. And so they would protect themselves from raiders, from criminals, from things like that by retreating inside their walls and having gates that they defended and so forth. So then empires would come along, right? And they would try to extend their reach and their influence. Egypt uh, you know, had their region of primary influence, but they also reached farther. And they, there were times where in you know, what was became to be known as Israel eventually, uh, you know, they would have, they would wield influence over those places. The, those places would pay, pay tribute to Egypt, all those little city-states and things. Um, now, no one was that concerned with drawing borders as to where Egypt's influence ended or began. It just 
went as far as Egypt could muster the power to do it. And same when the Babylonians came along, and same when the Assyrians came along. And, and so it's a little bit hard to you know, do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of some of these issues and from their day and time to ours. But we know that people moved around a lot in that time, just as they do now. We know that Jesus, for a while, right, him and his family, when, after he was born to escape persecution, went into Egypt. They traveled south. Uh, they didn't get to a border stop where they said, we need to check and see if you're bringing any of that Israelite fruit into Egypt, because it might have diseases that would kill our plants and our crops. You know, there were no checkpoints. There were no, are you bringing drugs into our nation? You know, these were not concerns that were on their radar. And even if they were on their radar, they didn't have the manpower to set up checkpoints and things like that. It just, it wasn't feasible. So it was a little bit of a different time. But, you know, some people might would say, well, that sounds uh, nice. You know, you hear some people talk about open borders nowadays, you know, that we shouldn't have you know, legal or illegal immigration, that it should just be kind of um, openness. And it used to kind of be that way, historically. I'm not sure you'd want to go back to those times. I'm not sure you'd want to go back to the times when the borders were open. In fact, I heard someone share, I can't even remember now who shared, but that borders were one of the greatest and most important developments towards peace and stability uh, that the world came up with because through those borders even though obviously there's still war and violence in the world the kind of tribal constant violence and warfare uh, that was so common in, in the past became much less through the establishment of internationally recognized borders and spheres of influence uh, so that's just for what that's worth that's some history as we dive into these topics but nonetheless there were everywhere in the ancient world, foreigners. Abraham traveled into a foreign land and lived as a foreigner. And then his people and his family moved down to Egypt and lived as foreigners. Eventually they were enslaved because the Egyptians were suspicious of those foreigners. All these things that we experience today about you know, how should we relate to foreigners and, and uh, you know, how many of them is enough and how many of them is too much. And uh, all these things are people, things that people have been wrestling with for thousands of years. They're not new. Amongst God's people, God made the laws of the land. He handed down, here's how I'd have you to live, and he gave them a bunch of rules to live by. Things that he brought up time and again included this. Don't oppress a foreigner. Remember that you yourselves were foreigners. Now you've got your own land that I've given to you, and there's people living amongst you that aren't of you. They're different. Maybe they look different. Certainly they talk different. They have different ways and customs. Don't oppress them like you were oppressed as a foreigner. Also, uh, here's just a few things on the theme that, uh, that I found interesting. That foreigners were welcome in Israel's nation, but they were also expected to abide by the laws of the land. So, this is an example. Uh, the community is to have the same rules for you and for the foreigner residing among you. And this is a lasting ordinance for generations to come. You and the foreigner shall be the same before the Lord. That's profound. They also said, uh, with regard to the Sabbath, everybody rests, including the foreigner living among you. Those foreigners, they need to be refreshed too. So this law is also for them. I think this was more to protect the foreigner and give them an opportunity to rest as well so that the Israelites couldn't oppress the foreigner by saying, uh, look, we have to rest today, but you do our work that day. <laughs> right? Another example. I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. This is one of the commands that they had about uh, dietary regulations, that kind of thing. And it was expected to apply to the foreigner the same as them. In other words, in all these things, those who weren't of Israel were still expected to abide by the law of that land if they wanted to live in that land. 
All these are coming from those five books I've told you about, the books of the law. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. This was Israel's uh, welfare system, you might say. Uh, you know, we, we fret a lot about that <laughs> today in the politics, how much is too much and should we have ever gone down this trail of uh, you know, welfare and entitlements and can we afford to do, what can we do, all these things. This was Israel's version of that. Uh, those who were wealthy enough to own vineyards and own farms and lands were told not to be greedy not to keep going over their land until they had every last grape picked up and every last grain harvested. But instead they were to leave the edges, leave the leftovers, leave whatever they missed on the first pass through for those who were in need. So that people in need, as they traveled here or there, or as they went out in the fields to look if they could rustle up some grub, that there would be something there for them to go out and get. They could find a couple of grapes that the harvesters missed, they, or maybe that they weren't ripe enough yet when the harvesters came through the first time, and they could go and get them. Uh, that they could find some grain at the edges of the field, and they could, Jesus' own disciples, who were poor with Jesus as they traveled around, would find that grain by the side of the road, and they would eat it as they traveled. And this was kind of a, a sort of a welfare system that they had in Israel to look out for the poor and the foreigner. When you're a foreigner in a land, you don't own land in that area. When you're a foreigner in a land, uh, you don't have connections and wealth and things set up to, you know, maybe you just moved there and you didn't have a crop that you've grown yet and that kind of thing. And so God was concerned for those individuals that they be cared for. There was nothing in there about, now, if they're a foreigner who uh, got themselves into this mess, don't let them have any. Or if they were a foreigner who's, uh, you know, just mean, <laughs> you know, don't let them. There weren't restrictions. It was just, for whatever reason, they're here and they're in a bad way. So don't be so greedy that you take everything and don't let others share. Leave something. That was Israel's system. Punctuated by, I am the Lord your God. It was clear also that God expected justice to be done. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether the worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Another example. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people shall say amen. In their culture just as ours, just as throughout history, we have a tendency to, uh, how to say this, if, if there's a dispute between your buddy and your enemy, right, or just from someone you know well and someone that you don't know well, whose side are you most likely to take? And this is true, they've, they've done studies, like this is how deeply this goes in our, our culture, culture, this just came to mind, so this is a bonus. They've done studies that, uh, where they told people, uh, you are in this group and you are in this group. Like, these people have never met each other before in their lives. They're just, they're just told, like, these are your people. <laughs> All right? For the sake of this study, these are your people and these are your people. You are in group A, you are in group B. And then they were asked to decide, like, who was better or who was right and who was wrong and make some of those kinds of calls. And they almost always chose their people instead of the other people. They never even met these people before, but they're their group. You know, they were group A. Group A, you know. So it's just what we do. It's, it's common, and God knew that. And so he said, don't withhold justice from the foreigner or from those that can't care for themselves, for the poor. You know, it's easy for, you know, a lot of times it's not the poor who are sitting in the judge's seat. And so the judge needs a reminder. He's not to withhold justice from the poor or the foreigner just because they're not his people. He's to be just and fair, and it's God who's going to hold him accountable to that. 
ultimately. We're given an example. This is a really neat example of praying for non-believing foreigners. And this passage comes from the dedication of Solomon's temple. When Solomon built the temple that his father David had envisioned building for the Lord, and Solomon carried through on that, there was a day when it was finished. And they were going to move in and start, uh, you know, services and things that they did in the temple, uh, offering sacrifices and so forth. And Solomon prayed a prayer of dedication over the temple. And part of that prayer was for the foreigner, who does not belong to your people Israel, he said, but has come from a distant land because of your name. For they'll hear about your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And when they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven, your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. And indeed, God blessed Israel during Solomon's reign, and they prospered. And people from all around saw the way that they prospered and were interested in being a part of that, and they would come to see what God was doing in that land. And they were welcomed, and not only welcomed, but prayed for, that they might also call on the name of the Lord their God. And so it's interesting that even at the dedication of the temple, Israel's pride and joy, their thoughts were also for foreigners and others that were different than them, who were not Israel, and yet they wanted everyone to recognize their God as the one true God. And so they prayed for them, that they would come and that they would pray and seek God's face. It's good to be reminded of that. I want to give you a couple of examples of this, how this topic of foreigners comes up in the New Testament for Christians post-Jesus. One comes from a letter to the Christians in Galatia. It says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this was not saying that those distinctions did not exist in their world, for they did. But that those who are in Christ Jesus are family. We, there's no lording it over one another like we try to do in the world. There was a lot of anger and animosity and hatefulness and prejudice and discrimination between Jews and Gentiles. Romans despised the Jews. At one point, they kicked them out of Rome. Get out of here. For years, people who had grown up in Rome as citizens, as people who that, that's their hometown, uh, were kicked out because they were different. They were foreigners. Get out. We don't want you here. Uh, Jews hated Romans, hated Gentiles, wouldn't have anything to do with them. This was the culture, this was the nature, and into that came Christianity and a Jesus people who said, no, in Christ, we are one. You're going to need to lay all that stuff aside. Leave it outside the door and don't pick it up again when you leave. We're different. And this, from the Apostle Peter, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. This is something I think we forget sometimes. We are foreigners. No matter how much you want to identify as an American, you're ultimately a foreigner. Your citizenship as a Christian is, in a, is held in heaven by God. Someday there will be a new heaven and earth and you will be a rightful citizen and co-heir with Christ in that kingdom to come. And right now you belong to that kingdom before you belong to any earthly kingdom if you are a follower of Jesus. You have brothers and sisters and fellow citizens of the kingdom to which you belong that live within various borders of our world. And they are your family. And that's a pretty cool thought. 
It's pretty amazing. Right now, it seems like they're so different. We have so little in common with them. I would suggest to you, though, that you've got, ultimately, more in common with someone who looks totally different from you and you can't even understand a word they say, but they love Jesus, than you do with your neighbor that doesn't know the Lord. These are things that a Christian, I believe, has to bear in mind. Peter learned that lesson in a hard way. And we read that story a few moments ago where God always had to beat Peter over the head at least three times. Did you notice that? It always, always took at least three times for Peter to get it. But three times God drives home this message that, Peter, I'm about to shake up your world. Those people that you grew up hating and that all the Jews hate are going to be people who are going to be part of your family. Uh, Julie's been reading through Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, and she mentioned to me that she ran across a passage where they were prophesying back before Jesus that someday there would be foreigners that would be part of God's people. What a shocking idea that must have been for Israelites who everything was based on their blood, their lineage, their being born into this family of Abraham. And the idea that foreigners would be grafted in seemed to defeat the whole purpose of who they were, what, you know, their identity as sons of Abraham. And yet this was prophesied and then it came to pass. And one thing that Julie found interesting about that, she said, is as she was reading about uh, that these foreigners would be grafted in, it, finally, it just dawned on her like, I'm the foreigner, <laughs> right? I'm the one who was grafted in. You know, to those first Christians, we were foreigners. People of our culture, our ethnicity, we were strange and not to be allowed in, right? And it took three times of God banging Peter over the head before he figured it out a little bit. And it still took going in obedience to God to Cornelius' house. This guy who he wasn't even supposed to go in the guy's house because he was unclean. He didn't want anything to do with him. And as he's reluctantly sharing the gospel with Cornelius, God's spirit comes on Cornelius in a powerful way that was evident to the people standing there. That's something that we don't often experience Maybe you have in your life, but God's Spirit coming in such a powerful way. But I believe that one of the reasons that God's Spirit came in such a powerful way in that moment, without Peter laying hands on them or asking for the Holy Spirit to come or anything like that, was because God wanted Peter crystal clear. This is my will. These are my people too. They may look different than you. They may act different than you. They may talk different than you. You may be uncomfortable with them. You may see them as the oppressor. But they're my people. And sure enough, Peter got confronted shortly after that by the other Jewish Christians who said, What were you thinking? You baptized them? <laughs> Are you crazy? And Peter's like, this is what happened. This is what the Lord told me. And then they received the Holy Spirit. I didn't do anything. I was just talking. They received the Holy Spirit. This is God's thing. And who am I to stand in the way of it? And so it has been ever since. So one last thing I would say to you regarding what Scripture teaches us about foreigners is that they represent one of our greatest Evangelistic, evangelistic opportunities. One of the greatest opportunities for the gospel. Foreigners, foreign non-believers represent one of the greatest opportunities for the gospel. Not just in America, but in every nation in the world. The people who come into whatever nation as a refugee or as a uh, foreign immigrant, they've left their home for whatever reason. Most people don't want to leave their home unless it's miserable there. They come to a new place and it's difficult and they face a lot of obstacles. And so they're vulnerable. They often are hopeless. And there's a people who have hope to offer. 
There's a Savior who has hope to offer. Oftentimes, people come from places where they aren't familiar with the gospel that we have to share. And so it represents an opportunity. A lot of people in America either know the gospel message very well, or they think they do, right? And they're not really that open to hearing it from you. But there are foreigners who haven't heard the gospel and it's fresh to them. Uh, we hear of people who uh, go as missionaries into places in the world that uh, the gospel has never gone. We've got a group that we support from time to time. They're named the Richardsons. They go around with uh, Jesus films. And they, take, they use videos in people's native languages. And languages that oftentimes, sometimes don't even have the, uh, the Bible written down in their language yet. Though we're getting more and more languages go in all the time, and they take these bits, these videos and things, and start spiritual conversations with people who are hungry for the gospel. They want to hear about it. They want to hear more. Foreigners often are a people who are hungry for the gospel, and we should keep that in mind. I want to talk just for a moment about Practically, how we can respond in this issue. At a personal level, maybe you have some kind of interaction with a foreigner. I don't know. Uh, maybe they, I mean, I'm not trying to do stereotypes here, but around here, a lot of times they may be working on your house or working in your yard or working somewhere that you have connection with them. Uh, maybe they're, at a, they're working as an employee at somewhere that you go uh, and you notice that they're a foreigner. Maybe they're your neighbor, or maybe they rent a property from you, and you have an opportunity. Maybe they're your server at a restaurant where you stop by, or whatever the case is. You have opportunities to rub shoulders with foreigners all the time, and I would encourage, um, I would encourage us to look for opportunities to show the love of Christ to those people. To treat them in the way that we believe Jesus would want us to, based on what we read from his word. I would always encourage every believer to be a law-abiding citizen, so as we can't be rightfully accused of doing wrong by anyone. And so there's laws regarding uh, immigration and things like that. We should do our best to abide by, I believe. But... Uh, Foreigners still yet present Christians with a special opportunity that we shouldn't miss. An opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus. As Christians in our families, in our workplaces, policy disputes are inevitable. They come up. What should be the political answers to these things? I would encourage you to emphasize what you are for. That you are for justice. That you are for the foreigner. That you care what happens to them. We may have different political persuasions on things. For, my, for what it's worth, I, I believe that both sides of the political spectrum in our nation are telling stories that we need to hear that each other need to hear. If you only listen to conservative media sources, you're going to hear predominantly one set of stories about the immigration crisis, and what's going on. And the left side, the progressives, whatever you want to call them, they almost never hear those stories from their news sources. And their news sources are telling stories that the conservative news sources are almost never telling either. And these stories, most of them, bear truth that we need to hear. That's good for us to hear. It doesn't always make sense or make clear what the best path forward should be. Immigration is complex. It's every bit as complex as the people involved with it. People are complex. Their situations are complex. I don't believe that there's easy answers to be had or silver, silver bullets to be had. 
But I think that there is a, a tendency that we have in our culture today to get politically divided on this topic and many others. And, and when we do, and when we focus on our political bubble, it's easy for us to shut out the stories that we don't want to hear that don't fit the narrative of the policies that we believe should be in place or whatever. It's easy for us to harden our hearts. And I believe and I pray that we would have hearts softened enough to be able to hear both stories and to have compassion and to have a longing for justice. You know, I don't believe that a Christian should be able to just talk about the drugs that are coming over the border and the violence that's coming over the border and not also care and talk about uh, the children affected, uh, the children that are separated from their parents. I mean, you can blame the parents or you can blame the government or you can blame... It's still a tragic situation. And I think that our hearts should be soft in both cases. And likewise, I don't think that a Christian should be able to just say, look at the atrocities being committed at the border by our own government. We should get rid of ICE or whatever. Like, I don't think you should be able to do that with also, without also recognizing that there are grave injustices happening, that ICE is our, as far as I know, our only branch of the U.S. government that is focused on human trafficking across our border. Are we supposed to be against human trafficking or not? There, you can't just say, well, look, we can't, you know, we have to have this policy because kids are being trafficked across the border. Or we have to have this policy because kids are ending up in cages. No, it's more complicated than that because they're both true. There are children being trafficked across our border. And there are children who be, are tragically separated from their parents. And put in really tough situations. And we can play the blame game and we can you know, tout our policies. But at the end of the day, both of these are tragic situations. And neither of our political parties are offering very many helpful solutions that address both. I'm not saying that there's easy answers, but I am saying that we should beware of getting trapped in a political bubble on this issue and other issues like it that might prevent us from having the kind of heart that God would want us to have. Maybe you're doing A-OK, and this message is not for you. But it was for me as well. I looked for organizations that we could donate to if we wanted to. Organizations that would be helping. You know, I thought, they keep talking about all this trouble at the border and there's not enough supplies and there's not enough room. And uh, well, why can't we just like donate stuff, you know? Apparently the government doesn't accept donations. I found that out. Uh, maybe they don't have the manpower to staff it or what, but people have taken goods down there for the people and been rejected. So, what can we do? Uh, so I started looking. And, you know, I, I've yet to find very many uh, Protestant groups doing anything. Uh, maybe I just couldn't find them. Maybe they weren't. Maybe Google didn't like them. I don't know. <laughs> but I couldn't find very many groups of Christians outside of Catholics who were doing anything on this subject. And many of the groups that are doing something down there have very liberal agendas that are pro-abortion and things like that that we aren't good with in our belief system. So, so it was a little bit disappointing to me that I couldn't find a group that said, look, here's a group with our shared values that is doing important work to minister to the foreigner you know, regardless of whether we think they should be there or not, they're there and they're struggling, they're having a hard time. If we want to help out, who do we go to? So the only people I've found so far are a, just a very few handful of Catholic groups that are supported by both Catholics and non-Catholics but share a lot of the same values that we do, like pro-life and things like that, and are doing an important work down there. ICE brings people to a, a Catholic center called the Humanitarian Relief Center a respite center, sorry. And hundreds of people show up there every day 
and are processed through. They're able to get some rest, get a shower, get some supplies that they need. Uh, things like shoelaces. Everyone loses their shoelaces when the Border Patrol picks them up and they don't have shoelaces anymore. So I didn't know that either. So they donate shoelaces and things and, and people, they resupply refugees and such that are processed and then leave those difficult facilities in a difficult way. And so it's a stopping point for them before they're just out on their own. It's a ministry. If you'd like to know more about it, it's in McAllen, Texas, Humanitarian Respite Center. If it's something that's on your heart and mind and you want to donate or whatever, they're trying to build a new facility, looks like, and things like that. So that's one that I found. Maybe you can find others. Finally, just want to say a word about we as a church. What are we doing? What can we do? I want to tell you one thing that we already do is that we love our renters well. And we've had a family for a long time that are foreign. They speak Spanish. They hardly speak any English. We've had a relationship with them for a long time as they've rented from us for a long time. Our church has four rental properties and they've rented two different properties that we've had over the years. And through the years, uh, we members of this church have given them food, given them Spanish Bibles, uh, amongst other ways of showing love. And recently they moved to Sterlington. And we were sad to see them go. They were faithful renters and uh, we had had a good relationship with them. And then they decided they didn't like it there and they were looking at moving back uh, something about schools or whatever the case was. Uh, they wanted to move back in this area. And the first thing they did was come to see if our church had property available because of that relationship. And so I just wanted to celebrate that a little bit. That That's a way that already we're loving the foreigner. And uh, we didn't say, oh, can you believe that? We've got foreigners in that rental property back there. That might come natural to our flesh. But as Jesus people, we're learning to think in different ways. When we get a chance to be a blessing at a personal level like that, we should. And as we find ways to help with this issue, just like we do with other social issues that we try to, that we have a heart for because of the heart of Christ being grown in us, then we should take action and do what we can. To close this message, I wanted to just share, I don't know the details of this story, my memory is not that good. When, uh, when Julie and I went to Orlando for the uh, Church of God convention that we went to down there, uh, they had a guy come over, his name was Samir, and he's a Church of God pastor in Paris. And his ministry specifically deals with refugees there. And he shared some with us, I'm hoping we'll have time for me to share a little bit of like a five-minute documentary of Samir and his life in our circles time afterward that everyone's welcome to come to in the fellowship hall. One of the girls that he ministered to there uh, was a girl from Iran who found herself stuck, I guess you could say illegally, in Paris. Uh, she had come from Iran to Egypt or somewhere in that area to study and had become, uh, had you know, done her higher education. I can't remember if she was becoming a doctor or something. Uh, something. She's a smart girl. Well, during that time, she became a Christian, and she, you know, was disowned by her father. Couldn't go home. The Iran would not receive her, and her papers ran out. So she couldn't go back home. So she tried to get to her family, some family that she had in Europe. And when she, the plane landed, they found out that her papers weren't good, that she was illegal, and they uh, wouldn't let her into that country either. And somehow or another, she ended up in Paris as, I guess, a place that would let her be there. And so she was there with no friends, no family, no one that wanted her in the world. And she met this pastor and his ministry. And this girl who had become a Christian found a church home in Paris amongst other refugees that had no home, were unwanted. 
Many of them had hope that when they fled from Syria under persecution, that they would find a place of hope in Paris and instead found that they were unwanted there just like they were everywhere else. And so they were in the streets and this church ministers to them and so forth. And I tell her story just as one example of many. I heard a similar story of a Church of God pastor that's in the United States illegally by, through a series of complicated events and is torn about what he should be doing, fearful that he'll be separated from his family and so forth. These situations are complicated. We shouldn't pretend that they're simple. There's people who are in our family of believers who are wrestling with this and don't know what to do. And obviously there's politicians that don't know what to do. And most of us wouldn't claim that we know exactly what to do. So as Christians, I think that it's a good starting point for us to have a heart that's tender towards the foreigner. A heart that longs for justice to be done. And a heart that prays. And a heart that looks for opportunities and sees the foreigner as someone who God wants in his family and might even be more receptive to the gospel than most people that look and talk like us. These are good things for us to remember, I believe. They don't solve a difficult issue. But they awaken a little bit more of God's heart in our hearts, I believe. Let's pray together. Father, you are the God who created us all. Every nation, every tribe. And as long as your word has been around, at least, you've made it abundantly clear that you have a heart for those with the greatest needs, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan. We confess, God, that we are unable to sort out what is best in these complicated issues. And we also confess our desire, or tendency at least, to turn a blind eye or a calloused spirit toward those in need that we'd prefer to dismiss. So Holy Spirit, we pray for your guidance in how to vote and how to talk to our elected officials about these issues. Guide us in how to help. Enlarge our understanding and our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.